I'm here. My name is Keith Dollar, and I get the privilege of pastoring City Church Garland. We've been here about seven years, and um, we are a church plant from City Church International. They sent us out about seven years ago, um, and it has been a joy to journey together um, here and, and develop um, a gospel culture here, a culture here that values and centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We are about knowing Jesus, loving people, and impacting the world. We want to make a difference in the world because the gospel of Jesus Christ has made a difference in our lives. We want others to hear it. We want others to know it, to know him, and have a personal relationship with him. One of our practices here at City Church is to go through books of the Bible and just preach through and teach through uh, various books of the Bible and get a grasp of the biblical narrative of what God says. And we, we explore what God says in Scripture. We explore what God means in, in the Scripture. And we look at how does this apply to our lives? What am I to do? How am I to take action based upon the stories that we read and what they mean in Scripture? How am I to apply this to my life. And so I've noticed my kids often can, they can, when I, when I tell them a Bible story, they will be like, we know that one. I know that one. And so I like to press them a little bit more. I, I want them to know the, the Bible stories and be familiar with what it says. But even more than that, in, in, at a deeper level, I want them to know what it means. I want them to know not only the narrative of the Bible, but what, what does the Bible mean? What do these stories mean? What do these, these commands mean? What does this mean about God? And what does that mean about us? And, and how do we apply it to our lives? The Bible wasn't given to us merely so we can get more information. And there's plenty of information that we get from the Bible. We learn about God. We get theology from the Bible. But it must lead to transformation. It must lead to changed lives. The revelation of God given to us in Scripture must lead to transformed lives. Amen? And worship of the one true God. And so with that said, we're going to open up in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Last week, Kevin kicked us off in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He jumped ahead because I asked him to preach on that text and it just landed uh, for that Sunday, last Sunday, and um, he did a great job talking about the essentials of worship. He highlighted the story of David bringing in the ark and David celebrating and dancing exuberantly, praising the Lord, worshiping God um, for for his presence and for uh, the victory that he had experienced. And, and then the ark started to fall off and Uzzah put up his hand and God struck him dead. And so Kevin emphasized last week how we are to have a holy fear and reverence for God and to regard God as holy, not just have this close, intimate, Jesus is my homeboy kind of relationship. While the Bible does teach that we are to have this intimacy with knowing God, it also teaches us that we are to regard God as holy. He is a holy God. We are to reverence Him. We are to fear the Lord. We are to trust the Lord and, and draw near to the Lord. And so we saw, we got a glimpse of David worshiping thoughtfully, reverently, joyfully, exuberantly, uh, humbly singing and dancing and shouting and clapping and kneeling with authenticity, with, with an accurate view of who God is and affectionately. We saw 
Uzzah, who, who approached God presumptuously, and, and McCall, David's wife, who looked upon David disdainfully. And these are some approaches that of worship that we can see across the spectrum of pe- how people approach God. And we want to be those who worship God in spirit and in truth. David teaches us. David's life and his psalms teach us to worship God. Okay? They teach us a lot. And one of the things is they teach us to worship God. But they also teach us how to lament. And that's what I've titled this message today from 2 Samuel chapter 1 is Leading with Lament. We're looking at 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, originally, uh, scholars believe that this was one book. Okay? That 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were both one book together. So you just put them together. Don't let the, the, the chapter divisions and the book division throw you off as you're trying to grasp the story. Okay? This was one book. And what we see in 2 Samuel is we see David's triumphs. Okay? David becomes the king. He gets crowned king finally after years of of running for his life in the wilderness, experiencing all kinds of hardships and trials, being persecuted unjustly. His life was being sought. He was being hunted as a wild, like a wild animal. And, 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 And finally he steps in to this place that God had ordained for him to be, namely a king who would shepherd and lead Israel. And so what we see here in the first half of uh, 2 Samuel is we see his triumphs. We see some victories. We see him stepping into that place that God had destined him to walk in, to lead and shepherd shepherd Israel. And, and Psalm 78 says that he did so with integrity of heart. He shepherded them with integrity of heart, and he led them with a skillful hand. Okay, He had both the art and the heart. Okay, He had both the character and and the charisma. He was a godly leader. Though he was imperfect, and we will see his imperfections, we will see his sins and his failures, but also we will see a man who leads with repentance, a man who repented, who lamented and and mourned over his sins when he did commit sins before the living God. And we see in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel as we see David lamenting over the death of his worst enemy, King Saul, and his son. And so let's go ahead and turn here. 2 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Fathers, we open your word. Teach us your ways. As Jesus said, it is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Would you teach us to be people who mourn over the brokenness in this world, who mourn over death, who mourn over the sin in our own lives, who mourn with others who are mourning? Teach us the way of lament and deliver us from unhealthy ways of dealing with grief and pain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright. Chapter 1, starting in verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Malachites, David remained two days in Ziglag. 
And on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head, when he came to David, fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man told him, told him, said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I answered, Here am I. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has ceased me, yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him and killed him, because I was sure that he would not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Speaking of David. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. They mourned and they wept and they fasted until the evening for Saul, for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for all the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young men who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, to, and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And, he, and David said to him, Your blood be on your own head. For your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. He said, your glory, excuse me, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places how the mighty have fallen. Tell it to Gath. Publish it not. I'm sorry. Tell it not to Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa. Let there be no dew or rain upon you. Nor fields or of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For behold, for, for the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothe you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on on your apparel, how the mighty 
have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. Here's our big idea this morning. David shows himself to be noble and fit to lead in his response. To lead in his response to Saul and Jonathan's death. He taught Israel to lament by his example and instruction, giving them vocabulary to lament for the death of leaders who had fallen. And so let's first start, let's look at three different people here. We're going to start with Saul, who David is lamenting over. And we see that King Saul, from the beginning, was a leader who failed in his leadership and who failed in life in so many ways. Saul was one who feared the people more than he feared God. He cared more about the preservation of his own image and and comfort than obedience to God. Saul's rebellion was as the sin of witchcraft, and he actually did engage with the witch, seeking some assistance near his death. Saul's presumption was idolatrous. Saul was heartless and and cruel. He was tormented. He was a toxic leader. He was somebody that was throwing spears at his right-hand man, David, who was helping him. David would play the instrument... Right, He played his instrument, and this tormenting spirit that Saul had would, would leave. And Saul would find some relief. But Saul was jealous of David, and he, he started chucking spears at him. So David had to live his life for many years on the run from King Saul. And two times, at least two, David had the opportunity to take Saul's life. And what did he do? He showed that he feared God and he respected the position and he didn't take Saul's life when he had the opportunity, though there was peer pressure put on him to take Saul out. He didn't take him out because he feared God and he kept a clear conscience and he and he overcame evil with good. And that's what we talked about just a few weeks ago. David is a prime example in the Old Testament of somebody who overcame evil with good. He's a prime example of somebody who lived out what Jesus taught. Love your enemies. That's what he did. Okay? He didn't allow the bitterness. He didn't allow bitterness and resentment to take over and take revenge and get take matters into his own hands. He overcame evil with good. Nevertheless, when we look at Saul's life, we, we have a warning for our own selves. And we, the, the Bible gives us characters that are both positive examples to follow and emulate, to imitate, as Hebrews 6 says, imitate the faith of those who through faith and patience have inherited the promises. But the Bible also gives us examples in the Old Testament as warnings. Well, of, 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 as examples that you don't want to go this way, you don't want to live like this. This is a, a tragic way to live your life and end your life. Now, they're not, they're not the most pleasant stories to hear about. 
But it's important for us too. It's important for us, the Bible says, to spend some time at funerals. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 says it's better to, go, to spend your time at funerals than parties. Because we're all going to die and the living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, it says. Next verse. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made glad. And so the Bible gives us a whole lot of language and instruction into this, this uh, element that we call lament or mourning or grief. Because you and I live in a post-Genesis 3 world. See, before Genesis 3, all was well in the world. There was no sin and death and suffering and war and disease and racism and injustice and all the things that we see in the world today that we would say, man, this world is broken. Is there any hope for change? Is there any hope for renewal? And so lament is a biblical way for you and I to respond to the pain and the grief and the heartaches and the disappointments that we experience in this world. And so Saul, I love this quote from Charles Swindoll, his book about the life of David. And he says this, he says, Saul's epitaph in five words appears in the 26th chapter of 1 Samuel. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will not harm you again, because my life was precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and committed a serious error. We see at least in two places, Saul, King Saul, admits his serious error. He admits his sin. He has a confession that doesn't seem to accompany repentance. There's one lesson to learn. Not all sorrow is a godly sorrow. And not all confession is accompanied with true repentance. Again, Saul was all about the image. When, 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 when Samuel confronted him in 1 Samuel 15 and, and said, man, you've been disobedient. You're going to have the kingdom torn from you. Saul was like, hey, honor me, honor me before the people. Come on. Before the people. He seemed to be so concerned about this here, this image here, rather than like David's response in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Right? Created me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me. So we have a contrast of, of a godly leader and an ungodly leader, both who sinned greatly, both who failed significantly. But Saul didn't seem to have the godly grief, the godly sorrow, the godly lament that accompanies repentance, true repentance. He said from his own mouth that he has played the fool. Saul has sinned and he has played the fool. Who wants that to be an overall description of their lives? From this tragic life and death, were warned. And David was grieved over this. One writer says this about Saul. A man plays the fool when he neglects his godly friends as Saul neglected Samuel. A man plays the fool when he goes on enterprises for God before God has sent him as Saul did. A man plays the fool when he disobeys God even in seemingly small matters as Saul did at first. For such disobedience nearly always leads to leads on to worse default. A man plays the fool when he tries to cover up his disobedience to God 
by religious excuses as Saul did. To obey is better than sacrifice, Samuel told him. A man plays the fool when he tries to persuade himself that he's doing the will of God as Saul tried to persuade himself. When all the time, deep down in his heart, he knows otherwise. A man plays the fool when he allows some jealousy or hatred to master and enslave and deprive him as Saul did toward David. A man plays the fool when he knowingly fights against God as Saul did in hunting David to save his own face. A man plays the fool when he turns from God, from the God he has grieved, and he seeks an alternative in traffic with spirits and the beyond. The end of all these ways of sin and folly is moral and spiritual suicide. We can only finish any such downgrade course with the pathetic groan of Saul. I have played the fool. So David sees Saul's life. And you would imagine, with, with all that Saul had done to David, you would imagine at this point that David would have some rejoicing. When, when he heard about Saul's death. And we see the exact opposite. We see genuine grief for this man, for this life. He respected the office. He respected the man in the very life. Another writer, F.B. Meyer, says this. He says that the pain of... Un, uh, he says, this is the bitterest of all, to know that suffering need not have been that it has resulted from indiscretion and inconsistency, that it is the harvest of one's own sowing, that the vulture which feeds on the vitals is a nestling of one's own rearing. Ah, me. This is pain. So we also see another man who didn't fear God in this story, and that is this Amalekite. He comes to David with news of the death of Saul and Jonathan and perhaps he's thinking in his mind that he's going to be met favorably by King David Saul the king who was David's enemy is now dead and he comes up with a story and I don't know if you have caught this it seems just a little bit different from what chapter 1 Samuel 31 says he seems to have a little bit of a twist of, of what the actual narrative, what actually went down. Now, some Bible critics may say, well, you see, there's, a, there's an error, there's a mistake in the Bible. All right? Well, it may be, and I, and I agree with scholars who would say, this Amalekite was not being truthful. He was an opportunist. He was somebody who was using the death of a dignitary, of a wealthy, powerful person for personal gain. And I'm sure we've all seen this at, from time to time. Somebody important dies, and there's those who are just trying to get what they can get out of the situation, milk it for what it is. And so he comes to David with this story that he's kind of fabricated, and he and he said he killed, he killed, him. he took him out. When the narrative says that Saul committed suicide and he fell on his own spear. Well, according to his own lips, this man becomes condemned. And we see David acting with discernment as a judge and uh, stepping into kingship in, in very, very near future here. And he has this man executed. And David says this. He said, 
said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Okay? This Amalekite did not fear God. He didn't have a healthy respect for authority. Even David himself, who had been anointed by Samuel to be the next king, and he knew it deep down inside, and and others confirmed it. Jonathan said, you're going to be the next king. Abigail said, you're going to be the next king. David knew it in his heart. He had kingship ahead of him. But there seemed to be, for many years, 13 years or so, a contradiction. Kingship, but like he's on the run, right? And and the the opportunities that David had to destroy King Saul, he didn't do it when when Saul came to use the restroom in the very cave that David and all his men were hanging out in. David went and just cut the corner of his robe off, didn't kill him. His his men were like, get him. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let's take him out and be glad, right? And, And he didn't get him. He pushed back. And the reason why, because David was a man who feared God. He was a man with conviction. He was a man who had a tender conscience before God. And he was going to trust God to bring about his good plans for his life. And so he didn't raise his hand against the Lord's anointing. He wasn't going to push his way to the throne. He was going to let God promote him there in due time. And so this Amalekite, he claimed to have raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. That's one strike with David. Like, hey, bro, you're, you really missed it here. You don't know David very well if you think that's going to win you brownie points with him. And two, his story didn't match up. It seems to indicate deception and self-promotion. He seemed to be an opportunist who was trying to jump in uh, here. And so we see... We see this Amalekite who didn't fear God. And then we come to, again, our big idea here, that David led Israel to lament, both by his example and by his instruction. Notice verse 11 and 12. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them, So and so did all the men who were with him. They mourned and they wept. They fasted. So they wept. They fasted. Now, fasting means not eating. Okay? Like you're missing a meal. You're missing two meals. You're missing three meals. You're not eating the chocolate cake. Alright? You're not getting the coffee. Right? You're, You're giving those things up. You're not going about business as usual because something's not right in the world or something's not right in here. And so you're responding. This is fasting is accompanied with biblical lament, with biblical mourning. You're saying that this is not right. This this hurts. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pause. I'm gonna let this sink in. I'm gonna let God do what He's doing inside of me in the midst of this grief and this pain. And we see this uh, in a number of places in the Bible where there was weeping and fasting uh, together. And they they did so until evening. So it was a day fast. Um, Until evening for Saul. Saul, Now notice it doesn't just say for Jonathan. And it doesn't just say for the defeat. The terrible defeat that the nation of Israel had experienced. Now one, one life alone is worth grieving and mourning over. One life being taken, being shot, being killed unjustly, stabbed, dying unjustly. Whether a child, a man... A woman, 
young or old, black or white, Hispanic, Asian. One life is worth lamenting over because we have been made in the image of God. Even an enemy, even an enemy who was doing evil and harming others and who seemed to be getting what they deserved. Namely Saul. It was worth mourning and grieving over. And David showed his compassion and he showed his humility in doing so. He didn't just start rejoicing. He didn't just move his way to the throne. Okay, that means I'm up next. He mourned and he, and he grieved over David or over, over Saul and over Jonathan. Now Jonathan was David's best friend. Now you know that hit home even more. Alright, but, but David did have legitimate grief for Saul. He did have legitimate grief for Saul's life being taken from him or his the suicide, the tragic death. But when you the more you love somebody, the deeper the grief, as Matthew Henry says. The more love and care you have for somebody that you lose, it just hits harder. It just hits harder. So we see David leading by example and by his instruction. David lamented with with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he said, look, he says, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Okay? All right, Judah, here's a song. Here's, here's a poem. Here is a, a eulogy for Saul and Jonathan. Let's learn this. Let's, he gives them vocabulary. He leads by exemplifying a healthy measure of lament. And he gives them vocabulary. He calls them to lament. And he gives them vocabulary for lament. When you're going through grief and pain, many times you don't have the words to say. And many times other people don't have the right words to say to you either. And so a little bit of vocabulary helps. And the Bible gives us some vocabulary and how to process it, how to express it, how to talk to God about it, how to pour out our complaint to God in prayer, how to express our fears and our doubts and our disappointments with what's going on. Eugene Peterson says this, he says that lament is not an animal well, wail, an inarticulate howl. Lament notices and attends, savors and delights, in details, images, relationships, pain entered into, accepted, and owned can become poetry. It is no less pain, but it is no longer ugly. Poetry is our most personal use of words. It is our way of entering into experience, of inhabiting it as our, as our home, not just watching it happen to us. David exemplified lament and he taught Israel to do the same. David's lament, as one commentator says, David his uh, lament mourns Saul's death in part because the Philistines, uh, because it caused the Philistines to gloat over the fall of Israel, a proof in their eyes of the superiority of their god Dagon over the god of Israel. David was concerned about God's reputation. 
David was concerned about God's name being glorified in Israel. They represented the one true God. They worshipped the one true God. And David was grieved about that. That, that, that the Philistines, whose false God might have been attributed honor and respect for the deliverance in the battle, David was grieved about that. He was grieved about the death of Saul. He was grieved about the death of Jonathan and, and all those who died as well. One theologian, D.A. Carson, says that when one of our leaders falls, conduct yourself in such a way not as to give strength to the opposition. Not as to give strength to the opposition. Here's another description that Eugene Peterson uh, has of lament. He says, lament continues to be a major way by which a people nurtures and maintains its humanity, socially, culturally, politically. All these aspects are included in David's lament. All wise families and cultures honor lament. Without lament, a nation is gradually but surely dehumanized into a military force or an economic function. If all the nation does is wave its flag and parade or boast of its standard of living and go to war to make money, it ends up sooner or later a husk. Lament keeps the people in touch with leaders and friends and losses and defeats and limits and suffering with its humanity. Lament keeps us connected with reality, with the actual with God. That is why David not only lamented, but he ordered that this lament be taught to the people of Israel. You can learn much about a person by what they grieve over and by what they celebrate. Last week we looked at what David was celebrating in chapter 6. He was celebrating the ark and the, the, the presence of God that, 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 that was the, the favor of God and God being with them and the restoration of this ark being brought back to Israel. And he was dancing undignified and he didn't care that he was a little, uh, looked a little undignified, right? He, he was free in expressing his worship to God. Now, now I, I could say more about that. Here at City Church, we want to encourage that, but also we want to encourage being mindful of those around you as well. Um, but there's a freedom in expressing and celebrating that, that, that he, that he exemplified. And so when you look at somebody's life, what they celebrate and what they mourn tells us a lot about what they care about. Okay? In the book of Psalms, over one-third of the psalms are categorized as psalms of lament. See, David and other psalmists have given us vocabulary, poetry, prayers, songs to sing. Songs to sing. Okay, music can be very helpful when you're hurting. Can it not? Would you agree with me? Music. There are songs that just meet you right where you need to be met. Emotionally, but, but uh, accompanied by meeting us there emotionally and what we're feeling, good songs will be accompanied by truth. All right? And the psalms meet us emotionally and they direct us to the truth. We're, we're shaped by the truth, the a biblical worldview of God and ourselves and others. And so we need to immerse ourselves in the psalms to learn how to lament well. 
And David had some really great opportunity. We probably wouldn't have many of these psalms if David didn't go through all the hardships in life that he went through for 13 years or so in the wilderness, hiding for his life, running for his life. And he went through many other troubles as well, even after he became king, even after he had experienced the triumph of Goliath. You would have thought, well, man, he killed Goliath. He, he should have it set for the rest of his life. I mean, they're saying, hey, Saul killed a thousand, David ten thousand. Like, man, he got he, he he should have it made, right? Well, he had hardships before he went to become king, and then once he becomes crowned king of Israel, you think, well, he should have it made. It should be all smooth from here. Well, David strayed. He sinned against God. And there were troubles that followed. There were consequences that were accompanied with those poor choices that he did make. Nevertheless, those poor choices aren't the overarching characterization of his life. The Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. His sins and failures do not define him. Nor are they to define you and me. We have become new creations in Christ Jesus. Getting ahead of myself. Uh, but let me just look look here at um, a couple of these psalms. This is taken from a book called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. Okay? And so the, the psalms of lament can be characterized in a few different categories. One, personal lament, an individual vocalizing pain or grief or fear or some strong, other strong emotion. Corporate lament, a, a group or nation vocalizing pain, grief, fear, and some other strong emotion. By the way, this poem or this song that David wrote, this was a national uh, call to lament for Israel to nationally engage together. We're going to weep over this. We're, we're going we're gonna to not continue business as usual and just move on. Okay, I'm king now, guys. It's, it's all good now. We don't see that in the song. He is, he is camping out before he gets over this, to this. Okay, there's going to be hope now because finally I'm, I'm, I'm going to lead better than Saul, right? He didn't, he didn't even go there in, in this. It's like he's sitting in the song, in this poet poetry, uh, this, this piece of poetry. He's sitting and he's, he's honoring those who are deceased, both Jonathan and Saul. And, uh, and, and he expresses honor. Uh, he expresses grief. He expresses... Uh, you know, at the beginning and the end, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, he describes Jonathan and Saul as um, uh, like a swifter than an eagle and uh, like, a, like a lion. And, and so he's giving honor to them uh, in his lament. And then there's also psalm, uh, lament, psalms of repentance um, that express lament. This is an individual or a group expressing regret for sorrow or sorrow for sin. There's the impeccatory psalms of lament, an individual or group expressing outrage and a strong desire for justice. Judge, oh God, get justice, intervene. This is wrong. You said vengeance is mine. We're going to let you take action here, God. We're, and we're crying out that you would. Jesus gave a parable in Luke 18 that men should always pray and not lose heart. Told the story about this this widow pleading to this unjust judge to get justice for me. Get justice. And she's crying out, get justice for me. And the judge didn't really fear God. He wasn't a, a godly man necessarily. And, and yet he responds to her pleading 
Why? Because she was persistent and she continued to bring the case to the one who could do something about it. And Jesus says, if, if that unjust judge took action based on that persistent pleading, how much more will God avenge the elect who cry out to him day and night saying, bring justice, God. He's going to come back and judge the living and the dead. And theologians would also highlight here that King Saul was getting justice in a sense. In the way that he died, it, his time was up. He was dying a tragic death. He lived an ungodly life, and he was dying an ungodly death. Now, David didn't eulogize him like that. Because that's not the time. That's not the time to place value on people's life when you're giving the eulogy. Right? It's time to mourn. It's time to weep. It's time to grieve. It's time to process. We need to be careful not to enter into judgment. God is our judge. And there's also psalms that are partially uh, lament. Um, and then there's some that are debatable. And so, this is something that over the last couple of years I've learned more about. And I must admit that I haven't, I haven't been the best mourner, griever, lamenter. Before I became a Christian, you know, my unhealthy way of dealing with pain when I lost my father at 15 and I lost my 10-year-old brother at 13 years old, my way of dealing with the pain is to numb it. It was to numb it. To get high, get drunk, relationships, taking things that were not mine, taking my pain out on other people. And these were ways that I tried to cope with the pain that I was experiencing. I didn't cry for many years. I just balled it all up inside. And so December 12th, 1998, when I came to Jesus with my hands lifted and tears rolling down my cheek, I had so much pain that was coming out in tears for the first time in my life that I can remember like that. And it felt so good. And I remember in that moment, those tears changing in an hour or however long it was. And I was at an altar call at a Christian rap concert, breakdance youth event at this church in Oak Cliff. And I'm there just bawling like a baby. I didn't want to be cool, like anybody looking at me crying. No, it's okay to cry. All right? There's this, there's this unhelpful perspective of men that, that you're not you're not strong, you're not cool if you cry. One of the most rough, tough, godly men that we see in the Bible, David, he wet his bed with tears. He was not ashamed to let those tears out, and he did because it's through that expression of mourning and grieving that we find healing and wholeness to the brokenness in our lives, partly at least. And so I remember just crying first out of pain and then out of joy, and God met me. And I, from, from that day forward, I have lived my life in, in the joy of the Lord. But as a Christian for 23 years, I've had plenty of days where I have felt discouraged and down and grieved. Where there's been loss, where where there's been loss of friends, family, or loved ones, or or, or uh, some tragic event that happens that I read on the news and I'm just affected by it, and I got to do something with it when I come across those things. 
I can't just stuff it and act like it didn't happen. I gotta grieve. I gotta mourn. This is the healthy way of moving forward. And sometimes we gotta go back to go forward. Sometimes we've stuffed stuff so far back, we've just tried to forget it. We don't wanna talk about it. We don't wanna think about it. And so more and more people are finding, man, I need a counselor. I need somebody to just help navigate me through all these deep, deep pains and sorrows that I don't know how to get past because it hurts. And as the people of God, we should be those who rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Not everybody needs to go to a professional counselor. I'm all for it. If you're not, if you don't have community that's helping you move forward and get healing and you feel like you need deeper, more precise, skilled help, go. But as the people of God, as the community of faith, we should be those who move towards one another out of love and care. Even though we may not understand why our brother or sister is mourning and weeping. And and it doesn't say, well, mourn with them if you think they should be mourning. It says just mourn with those who mourn. All right? Move towards those who are grieved and mourning and are broken by the effects of of sin in the world, a fallen, broken world, whether it was their fault, whether they brought this on, this grief and this terrible circumstance on themselves, or whether it was done to them. Mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. This is how we live out the gospel in community with one another. We rejoice with our brother and sister who gets engaged. We rejoice with our brother and sister who adopts their second second son. Right? But we mourn with the sister who loses her father suddenly. Or loses. We mourn with the sister and the brother who loses their baby for the third time in a miscarriage. And we move towards one another and we listen. We listen. We try to understand. We try to hear what's going on. We mourn. We mourn with our brothers and sisters who have been mistreated through racial injustice. This is what a gospel culture looks like. Yet we are to be people who not only grieve, we don't grieve like the world, we are to grieve with hope. Okay? The cross, the cross meets us at the crux of our pain and brokenness in this world. Jesus stepped into the pain and the brokenness in this world. And he bore the sin of the world and his soul was sorrowful even to the point of death leading up to the cross. He was feeling internal pressure and then he felt it on his body with lashes and beatings and he was treated with the ultimate injustice. And Paul says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him up, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so the gospel, 
The gospel meets us in our mourning. God sympathizes. Christ sympathizes us in our weakness and our pain. He has stepped into it. Jesus himself wept when his friend Lazarus was dead. And he was about to raise him up out of, out of that out of him being dead for four days. But for some reason, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept because his friend was dead. And he was looking at the brokenness of the effects of sin in the world. He raises him up. He says, Lazarus, come forth. He did, he did something about the brokenness in the world. So when we look at the world... We can look at, though, though we need to be realistic and acknowledge, yes, it is broken. It is messed up. Things are not right. There's imbalances. There's power plays. There are, there's deception. There's an immorality. There's greed. There's slander. There's hatred. There's devaluing of life in so many ways. We, we look at it with realistically, but also we look at the world with hope. Because Christ has stepped into this brokenness. He's done something about it. He went to the cross. He went to the grave. He tasted death for you and me. And he was resurrected from the dead. The greater David has conquered the giant of sin and death and Satan. He has brought us victory. And we were like the, the fearful Israelites. Not wanting to go to battle. And Jesus stepped in and he went to battle for us. And he leads us into this victory through the gospel. So we grieve with hope. And so let me close with just a couple points of application. There's a whole lot more that I would like to say about this. There's a whole lot more that I'd like to learn about this. As I was preparing, there were a couple books that I just thought, I want to read that. I want to spend some time on that so I can learn how to do this better and to lead others in doing this better. Because what I see, my observation as I look out at Americans and American Christianity is we don't tend to greet very well. We, we tend to rejoice better, right? And, and I'm like that. I mean, that's just kind of how I'm wired. I love, I love a good party, right? And so it takes discipline for me. It takes some intentionality for me to grieve, to weep, to mourn, to sit in the pain. Because I'm, 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 I'm quick to say, let's look at the bright side here. God's working. God's working. This isn't the last word. That's my tendency. I'm going to go there. But I need to learn to like put that on pause for a minute. Or a day or two or however long it takes. And, and sit with my brothers and sisters in the grief and the pain. It's work through my own grief and my pain. Talk to God about it instead of stuffing it. And give proper space. So that I can move forward in a healthy way. And so first, first point of application here is avoid moving on with business as usual when a loved one dies or some other tragedy. There's a, there's a major sickness that you or a family member experience or there's some terrible thing that happens that just weighs your heart down. There's a time to slow down and grieve and process. Slow down long enough to process thoughtfully and prayerfully. And as we sang earlier, do, do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. Yeah, you can sit there. And at some point you move on to the next part. But do you know that all of the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see all things made new? We do. And we will. And so we grieve with hope. 
And then express your grief in heartfelt conversations with friends, ideally with safe people that you can talk to. And, and through journaling your prayers, writing out prayers. It's amazing what that, that can do for you when you're going through and you, you got it's all balled up, you don't know how to express it. And the Psalms will help you give you some language. You know, you can use some of that and write some of those psalms down and then start to kind of venture off and write your own lament. David wrote this beautiful lament. And then use the psalms of lament to aid your vocabulary in expressing grief. And lastly, enter into the grief of others. How? By patiently listening to their pain and just being with them. Just being with them. You don't have to have all the right things to say. We don't we don't want to be like Job's friends. Right? His friends that, that didn't do so good in the long run in helping helping the friend out. Um, we want to be those who like Jesus entered into the pain, the brokenness. He did he did something about it. Now, ultimately, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who can do something about the biggest problems in this world. And so we point one another to Him and we look to Him. Amen. If you would bow with me in prayer. If you were looking for a more uplifting message today, um, I apologize. But also know that amongst our little flock here, there are those that have some heavy things that they're walking through. And I know that we're going to need this at some point if we're not going through it the longer we live. And so, Father, help us. Give us your heart as you... As you grieved in Genesis 6 over the world and its brokenness. Jesus, as you wept over Jerusalem because you wanted to gather them as a mother hen does its chicks, but they were unwilling. They didn't recognize the day of visitation. God, teach us like Paul to carry such a burden for those who don't know you that we're willing to sacrifice of ourselves, so that they might hear the gospel and believe and come to know you. Teach us to slow down and listen to get your perspective to hear out others who are hurting to be instruments of your grace to them. You are the God of comfort and you comfort us in our tribulation so that we can comfort others in theirs. And so may we experience that. May we live that out. In Jesus' name. Amen.